There have been few inventions of man more grotesque and painful than crucifixion. When we read in the Bible about Jesus being crucified among others, sometimes that may be lost on us because this isn't something that is still done today, thankfully, and it's not a public spectacle like it, like it once was. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. Most historians say that it started in the Persian Empire, but the Romans, by all accounts, certainly were the ones to perfect it. We read in history, and it's confirmed in the Bible, that the Romans had a very methodical almost ritualistic way by which they would crucify somebody. They would start by the initial torture, usually with scourging or by some other method, and then they would make the person who was tortured carry their own cross, at least the top cross part, to the place where they would be crucified. And their hands and feet would either be tied or nailed to the piece of wood, and then they would wait while in public, shamed, they would die eventually, either of suffocation or hemorrhaging or by some other way. And it's easy for us to read these things and maybe to lose touch of all that is going on and what a scene it must have been. But we see in the text that was read for us, not just Jesus being crucified, but two others being crucified with him. And we're going to look at each of these crosses and see some lessons for us from the men on these crosses and what we can learn from them. So I hope if you're not already, you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we'll begin uh, there in verse number 32. And we'll read through verse 39. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, At him, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And we know from the other gospel writers that this is something that Pilate insisted hung above Jesus' head, though the rulers of the Jews were against it. One of the criminals, notice here the first cross, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And we see some things here from what we'll call for the purpose of this lesson the mocker's cross. And this man, this criminal, this thief, as many of our translations might say, or robber as he hung there, and the things he said to Jesus. Fundamentally, this man is an example of how not to be. Not only because he broke the law and was on a cross, but because of how he treated the Son of God. And we read about these men, and usually, again, like I said, depending on our translation, they're described as thieves or robbers, but really, that Greek word, when you study it, means something a bit more intense. If they were thieves, they were more like um, what we might call, not barbarians, but um, almost raiders, right? Who were almost as highway robbery and taking people by surprise and ruining whole uh, caravans. But more likely, because theft rarely deserved the penalty of crucifixion in Rome, more likely these were insurrectionists, revolutionaries, people who by violent means were trying to weaken or topple the Roman Empire. 
And so they warranted the death of crucifixion. Remember, that was one of the things Jesus was accused of. He says, Caesar's not our king. And that's why Pilate's hand was forced in crucifying Jesus in the first place. But see what this man has to say and how he was wrong. In the first place, he's wrong in that he joined the crowd. Look at verses 35 through 38 and how the Jewish rulers, they started this theme of mocking or making fun of Jesus. It says there that the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others, let him save himself. He's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too. They offered him sour wine. And he said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, somewhat somber by Pilate, but also a mockery saying, the king of the Jews. And this criminal there, hung on that cross, joined in with them. He was in lockstep with Jesus' opponents. And maybe he caved into the peer pressure, or maybe he was just so desperate in that situation, and he didn't know what else to do. He cheered along with those who scoffed our Lord. And the Jewish rulers were used to this sort of thing. In Mark 15, 11 through 13, you can read about how at first the crowds weren't willing to allow Jesus to be crucified instead of Barabbas, but it says that the rulers of the Jews convinced the people to cry out, crucify him, when Pilate presented Jesus. And he was following in the footsteps of those around him. In the next place, we see that he did not take responsibility. And we see him contrasted to who's sometimes called the penitent thief. He didn't take responsibility for his actions. Instead, he was looking for the easy out. He did something to, in the eyes of Rome, deserve that penalty. And instead of saying, okay, well, this is my fate, this is what I'll suffer, he said, maybe there's some way I can get out of this. Jesus, yes, come off the cross, save yourself, and save me too. He desperately wanted to get out of the consequences that he had earned himself. And sometimes we might be like this, though not a thief on a cross, we might find ourselves in a situation that we've put ourselves in. And we might be looking for a quick fix or an easy way out. Maybe there's some way where I can not take accountability for my actions and still be saved from the consequences. But the truth is, that sort of thing just doesn't exist. The Proverbs tell us that whoever transceals his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You see, this thief, this person on this cross, this criminal wanted an easy way out, but there wasn't one, and he refused to take responsibility for his actions. Likewise, we see that he had a worldly mindset. And how do we know that? We know that because he begged Jesus to come off the cross and to save him too. Remember in Matthew 16, verses 22 through 23, Jesus got just done explaining how he has to go to Jerusalem and he has to be captured by the chief priests and the elders and how he has to die for the sins of the people. And do you remember what Peter said, always the first to speak? Far be it from you, Lord. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. For your mind is focused on the things of man and not on the things of God. You see, Peter in that moment was so focused on his friend preserving his life that he forgot about the sins of the whole world that was going to be sacrificed in Jesus or a sacrifice was going to be made for them in Jesus. And with that worldly mindset, this criminal thought the same thing. And what we see is that he actually, that's the wrong button. And what we see is that, let me get back here. Wow. Wish I had a bed sheet instead. <laughs> what we see is that he actually had it backwards. Think about this for a moment. Jesus was on the cross 
so that he could save mankind. And the thief on the cross, this one, asks Jesus to come off of the cross so that he might be saved. You see, because he had that worldly, fleshly mindset, because he wasn't thinking about the things of God, he had it backwards. In fact, that man's only hope of being saved, or the world's only hope of being saved, rather, was if Jesus remained on the cross. And this man, out of selfishness, out of a refusal to accept the consequences for his actions, begs the sacrifice of God to get off of the altar so that he could be saved and experience temporary life just for a bit longer. He was disconnected from the bigger picture and he sought physical comfort over spiritual blessings. And his only hope, the only hope of mankind, was found in Jesus remaining on the cross and he wanted the opposite. If we're not careful, we can be like the mocker on this cross. I hope none of us here would do this, but sometimes it's easy to affix ourselves to a crowd who do not respect Jesus as they should. And it's easy to join in when people maybe are making light of very serious things or maybe even mocking our Lord. And this isn't a new thing, this idea of mocking Jesus. In fact, one of the earliest examples we have of satirical graffiti in the catacombs of Rome is a depiction of Jesus on the cross with the head of a donkey talking about how he really wasn't God. You see, this is nothing new and it still happens today. We must be careful not to join the crowd that makes fun of Jesus or respects him and doesn't respect him enough to do what he says. Likewise, we can get stuck in this trap of not taking responsibility for our sin, like Adam and Eve did, like many have done before us, like we've probably done at one point or another in our life, looking for some quick fix, some easy way out, instead of humbling ourselves, being honest with ourselves, being honest with those around us, being honest to God, and saying, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me for I have done wrong. It's easy to have that worldly mindset that preserves the flesh at the expense of the spirit. But maybe we must remember what's most important to God and be in step with him. Next we'll notice the lamenter's cross or the cross of the one who is penitent. And notice some details from his, like, the account of him on the cross. If you would look there in your Bibles in Luke 23 verses 40 through 43. This man just got done making fun of Jesus. And this other one says, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And this man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Notice a couple of things from this man on the cross. In the first place, He stood up for Jesus. He feared God. When he asks the other criminal, do you not fear God? There's a sort of rhetorical quality to to this where he does. He's saying, look, if you really feared God, you wouldn't be talking like this. And he stands up for Jesus and says, look, we deserve what we have. Jesus does not. He admitted Jesus' innocence, which leads us to this fact that he accepted justice. He took responsibility for what he did wrong. He wasn't looking for a quick way out. He wasn't looking for an easy fix. He said, this is what I've brought upon myself, and I'm going to experience it, but I'm not going to blaspheme the Son of God in the process. It reminds me of Paul in Acts 25.11, when he's making this case before all these different people of his innocence, and he's trying not to be murdered by the Jews, and he says there in Acts 25.11, 
If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to accept death. I'm sorry, I do not seek, sorry, to escape death. Paul's mindset was, look, if I've done something where I deserve death, I'll submit to that. And this guy had a similar idea. Next, notice that this man confessed Jesus as Messiah. And this might be something that's easy for us to miss, because he doesn't explicitly say, Jesus, you are the Christ, nothing like that. But notice when he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. That reveals something about what he believes about Jesus. It reveals that, in the first place, Jesus has a kingdom, just like the Messiah was supposed to. And there's a lot of conjecture about this man. We don't really know much about him other than what's presented to us. Maybe he heard the preaching of John the Baptist. Maybe even heard the preaching of Jesus himself. He knew, for whatever reason, that Jesus was bringing a kingdom. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter it. Next, this man relied on Jesus. He relied on Jesus for entrance into the kingdom. And he says, Jesus, remember me, or don't forget about me when you enter your kingdom, please. Is there any way that I can go with you? He knew that Jesus had the authority and the power to grant his entrance into the Messiah's kingdom. And so he relied on him. And now there's obviously some ways where this man is not a good role model. Uh, He's on a cross, for example. Uh, Justly, he confesses. But here in this moment, where he stands up for Jesus, where he displays his fear of God, where he accepts the justice due to him, where he confesses that Jesus does indeed have a kingdom, and he relies on Jesus for his entrance, in these things, he is, in a way, a good role model. And for us, if we're ever to enter God's kingdom, as many of us have here, there's only one way to do it, and that's to rely on Jesus. And how do you rely on Jesus for entrance into the kingdom today? You have to do what he said. When Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, Teacher, we know that you're a teacher from God. Jesus' reply was, No man can see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it, so Jesus clarifies, Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you will never enter, nor will you even see the kingdom of God. You see, if we're going to be in the Lord's church, if we're going to be in Jesus' kingdom, We must rely on what Jesus has said. And I know much is made about this thief on the cross, that somehow this invalidates what the rest of the Bible says about baptism. But that simply is not the case. Jesus, after he resurrects, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, still says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And we try to wrestle with why this thief could be forgiven. And to be honest with you, I don't have all the answers. But I know in Mark 2.10, Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority on earth, to forgive sins. I know that all the region of Judea came out to hear the John the Baptist preaching and were baptized by him. This man very well may have been baptized under the baptism of John. And I know that the Christian era doesn't even start until after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So we can work with that and wrestle with that, but whatever the case may be, it does not invalidate what the rest of the New Testament has to say about baptism, how essential it is, how necessary it is, how it's through that mode that Jesus adds to his church. And then we see the Savior's cross. Notice with me verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And if you look closely at what the text records here, there's some insight we get into the nature of Jesus because of what happened during his crucifixion. It wasn't like the other two. It wasn't like the other two where everybody knew that they deserved to be there. It wasn't like the other two where it was just another thing. You see some major things happened while Jesus was on that cross. And we get to learn a little bit more about who Jesus is. In the first place, we see that he is... Sorry. In the first place, let's see here. Now I know why Chad doesn't like PowerPoint. In the first place, we see that he is the master of the universe. Notice there in the text, in verse 44, it was now the sixth hour. And maybe you have a footnote in your Bible that says that is noon, when the sun is the highest in the sky, and the sun's light failed. There was darkness over the whole land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That is, from noon to 3 p.m., about the hottest part of the day, the sun was failing. And part of this shows us God's displeasure in the fact that this innocent man was dying. Part of this shows us the fact that the very master of the universe was being murdered in the flesh here on earth. And it even goes a step further where we see that while the sun's light failed, the sun's light was on display. And there is this man who had done nothing wrong, who came only to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to save the world. God's own son, God in the flesh, and he's experiencing the, one of the worst deaths that us humans have ever invented. And the sun can't help but go dark because of the travesty, because of the tragedy, but also God's justice being wrought. We also notice here about Jesus that he reconciles man to God. Notice again in the text in the latter part of verse 45 that while the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn into two. Now there wasn't just one curtain in the temple. There's a lot of discussion over which curtain was torn. Most likely it was the curtain that was around the most holy place, the holy of holies. The place where in the Old Testament God's presence dwelt. Where the ark of the covenant, where the mercy seat was wherein the Jews would seek atonement and forgiveness of their sins. And the Bible tells us that this temple was torn while Jesus was on the cross. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus bridges the gap between man and God. Because of our sins, we're separated from him. But while Jesus is on the cross, that fabric that separates men from the very presence of God is ripped in half. And it's a reminder to us that through Jesus... We can approach God. Through Jesus, we can have access to the mercy seat. We can have access to atonement for our sins as he shed his blood on the cross. More than that, Jesus on the cross, we see that he is indeed the Son of God. Notice as he cries out, and this is another thing that may be easy for us to miss, there in Luke 23, 46, he cries out and he says, Father, Into your hands I commend my spirit. And it says that he breathes his last. 
And we, because we've been taught by Jesus through his word, when we pray, we approach God as Father. But this is something that bothered the Jews. In John 5.18, it said that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And even there on the cross, his last moment before death, he cries out to his Father. Again, another claim that he is indeed the Son of God. And then we see that his death can change us, just as it changed the people who were there witnessing it. Notice there in the text in verse 48, sorry, in verse 47 and following. Now when the centurion who had seen what what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Think about that for a second. I know uh, some of you in this uh, crowd were at one time in the military. And I've never been in the military, never had any desire to go, though I do respect those who are there serving and those who have served. But I'm pretty sure that when you're higher up, when your commanding officer gives you an order, you stick to it. And this man, whose order was to oversee the death of these criminals, can't help but to praise God and to proclaim that this man, whom his commanding officer had declared guilty, he couldn't help but claim him as innocent. Watching the death of Jesus, watching and seeing what was transpiring on that cross, led this man to make a great confession. In the Gospel of Mark, we read that he also said, truly, not only was this man innocent, but truly, he's the Son of God, which was, by many accounts, treasonous for a Roman centurion to say, because only the emperor held that kind of title. What could have transpired for this man who was so used to seeing death and so used to seeing crucifixion acclaim, uh, sorry, proclaim such a thing? He saw something he'd never seen before. He saw the innocent Son of God dying for the sins of the world. And I don't know if he later became a follower of Christ, but it seemed at least for this moment his life was changed. But it wasn't just him. Notice verse 48. And all the crowds had assembled for the spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And this is a phrase that's used throughout the Bible to signify not only humility, but repentance. Have you ever done something so foolish and so regretful that you felt like hitting yourself? I've done that way too often, unfortunately. And these people, as they go home, they can't help but pound on their own chest. And they went from mocking and scoffing at this man to realizing they were wrong as they watched life pass from the flesh of the Son of God. And it wasn't just him. We zoom out even more, and we see on a hill overlooking the crosses Jesus' acquaintances, some of his disciples, no doubt, even some women who had known him and had followed him. And why were they there? Why were they there on that mountain overlooking this grotesque occasion? Why had they left their families and their friends and their businesses to be at this place at this time? Because they had been changed because they spent time with Jesus. And you see, just from the foot of the cross in that centurion to the crowds round about, all the way zoomed out to a nearby hill where his acquaintances overlook, you have three levels of people who were changed by Jesus. 
And through his death, through his crucifixion, we can be changed as well. By his death and resurrection, we can be reconciled to God. We can be forgiven of our sins and we have a place in God's kingdom. So what should we do? We shouldn't be like the first criminal. We shouldn't join in with the crowd that mocks Jesus and doesn't take accountability for their actions. If you have sin in your life, own up to it. Come to Jesus and receive forgiveness. If there's something you're hiding, if there's something you're trying to get around, recognize that there's no quick fix, there's no easy way out, but with the Lord, there is forgiveness. And be more like the second one, the one who's willing to take a stand for Jesus when all the world is mocking him and making fun of him. Be like the one who relies on him for entrance into the kingdom as you look to the Savior and recognize him for who he is, the Son of God who came to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And remember that through him and by him and because of him, we can be changed and we can have new life. For Christmas, my father gifted Lori and I a cross to hang in our home. Kind of turquoise, I think it's some kind of Colorado pottery, I don't know. But it's beautiful. We haven't hung it up yet, but it's very beautiful. And when you think about how we use crosses and how they hang in our walls and how they're on our jewelry and how we see them almost everywhere we go, how did something so grotesque and designed to be so painful and humiliating make its way onto home decor and jewelry and whatever else. You see, here on this cross, on the Savior's cross, crucifixion, one of the most grotesque inventions of man, became beautiful because it was through this means that God reconciled the world to himself. And that was a while ago, but the power from that event still continues. And it's not even the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And if we follow him and place our faith and our trust in him, and if we confess him as who he is and turn from our sins, and if we're buried with him, our old man of sin dies. Not violently in a crucifixion, but in the grave of baptism. And just like Jesus rose from the dead, we can have new life. How? By this one on this cross who came so that we could have life. Maybe you're not reconciled to God. You haven't come through Jesus Christ to the throne of our Lord. Today's the day to do that. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. None of us do. But we can all know that in the Lord, we can have mercy and we can be saved. Maybe you have been saved. You have relied on Jesus for entrance into the kingdom, but you find yourself a little bit like that first criminal. You find yourself scoffing Jesus, if not openly, by your deeds, refusing to do what he's asked us to do. Today's the day to repent, to change that, to fix that, to come to Jesus on his terms, and he will save us. If you have a need to come forward, please do so while we stand and sing.